0: Hey guys, welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host Chris Ward. This podcast, when I started it, I kind of dreamed that it would be kind of a platform and a place where people could share their journeys, their stories, and their adventures. And I really wanted it to be a place where the listeners, people who are listening to this, including myself cuz I get to listen to all these amazing guests too, I wanted it to be a place where all of us can really see not only the accomplishment of the person we're having on, but their journey as well. And I'm hoping that, I was hoping that their journeys would seem, would make it seem to us like we could accomplish whatever our own goals are. Because you always hear about, the end goal the end accomplishment that people have for example if you look back on the podcast iron cowboy he ran 50 ironmans 50 states 50 days some people didn't hear about that until he had already finished um and then you hear about people they've ran 100 miles you're like that's great you ran that 100 miler that was your big event and you accomplished it and that's what we hear about and today's guest he climbed mount everest And so if you met him just, I don't know, on the subway or on the street in the park, and he said, yeah, I climbed Everest, right away, you're blown away because that's a huge accomplishment, but you, you don't really process what the journey was. You don't really fully understand the steps he had to take, the adversity he had to work through. To even get to the point where he was attempting the summit Everest. And that's what I love. That's what I love about podcasts. Podcasts are amazing because it's a platform where people can have these long form conversations and you can actually see how they got from step A to step Z. So, step A is the initial, you know, kind of twinkling of an idea. And step Z is, standing on Mount Everest. So today's guest is Kuntel Joyzer, and he is a mountaineer, uh, lives in Mumbai, India, and he was the first vegan to summit Mount Everest. And I should say the first documented vegan, and he'll get into that in the podcast, to summit Mount Everest. And he did this in 2016. And so, you know, you hear that story and you're like, that's Amazing, what an accomplishment. But that's surface level. If we dig a little bit deeper, you get to see and you get to understand what led him to that point. Because he'll tell you and he'll get into the story, so I don't want to ruin a lot of it. But in 2009, he was sedentary essentially. He was a sedentary, regular guy going to an office, um, you know, not necessarily really athletic, didn't do a lot of activity. And then he had an experience that completely changed changed him. It completely just set this goal and this purpose in his life. And he's going to get into that, so I don't want to ruin a lot of it. But I guess that's the big idea this week. The big idea is that our major life goals, and I don't even know if goals is technically technically the best word but uh i guess mission would be a better word or a purpose by finding your purpose and a lot of us don't know what it is yet you know you you might be 40s 50s maybe even in your 70s and you still haven't necessarily found your life's purpose but kuntel is going to tell you by finding that purpose a lot of the other things in life like health and wellness and mental wellness and emotional wellness, all those are going to fall into place by having a purpose, by having a drive, by having something that you're working towards. And a lot of us, me included, we don't necessarily take the time to really consider our life's purpose. We don't take the time to really think about Why are we put here? What do we want to accomplish in our short time on earth? And Contel is going to tell you the power of understanding that. The power of having clarity on your life's purpose. And I mean clarity for his life's purpose, which is, you know, to promote the, um, vegan lifestyle but also really to end the suffering of animals and he also you know goes after um dementia awareness so two things that are really important in his life by having that clear vision and that clarity of why he's been put here he's been able to accomplish so much in a short amount of time in a short seven years he went from sedentary to standing on mount everest um, and, you know, this story is going to be great. I'm, I'm so excited. Like there was a point in the conversation where I just kind of stopped talking and I was just completely encapsulated by his storytelling. He's so good. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping you guys really enjoy it. If you enjoy it half as much as I enjoyed it, it's going to be a damn good podcast. So, uh, so yeah, huge thanks to Kuntel. Um, You guys can find all of his information. Obviously, there's a lot more on here. Um, there's, uh, you can check out his website, which is kunteljoysert.com, which uh, let me spell it for you really quick. It's www.kunteljoysert.com. J-O-I-S-H-E-R.com. Uh, you can find him on Facebook. His group's called Kuntel J. And then same on Instagram. Uh, also, huge shout out to Dr. Casey Johnson. She hooked me up with this podcast. She is the host of the Unlock Wellness podcast. She was on here a few episodes ago. And she really connected, connected me to uh, Kuntel. And yeah, excited to make it work. It was amazing. I, I've never spoke to someone who was currently... Uh, literally around the world from me, like on the opposite side of the world. So that was a really neat neat experience. Um, So thank you, Dr. Casey, you rock. Um, I want to be really open and clear about this uh, because I don't want to be misrepresenting myself. I am not actually a plant-based athlete or a vegan necessarily. Um, There's been times where I have eaten vegan for a few months and I loved how it made me feel. Um, but I didn't want to misrepresent myself because I have had a lot of vegan athletes on and I just wanted to make that clear. Uh I do keep an open mind. I do love trying new things. Um, and I told tell that before the podcast, and he was super positive and super supportive of you know, that mindset of keeping an open mind and and really listening and considering because honestly talking to all these athletes, and I'm thinking of uh Dr. Casey Johnson, um, Bill from Run of the national parks, who I just finished actually going for a run with, uh, <laughs> and uh, Josh Lajani. They're all great, amazing plant-based athletes. And um, so, you know, meeting with them has made me a bit more conscious of what I'm putting in my body to fuel myself and how it's how it's affecting me. So check that out. That's, that's definitely uh, something I wanted to be clear about, though. Before we start the podcast, if you enjoy this episode, uh, I would suggest out of my catalog, I would suggest heading back a few episodes to number 62 with the Antarctic Gurkha, Scott Sears, who literally today started his journey taking on the south pole and he's trying to be the youngest unsupported person to hike to the south pole he's pulling like a 200 pound sled um can story reminded me of this uh because there's a point where he goes to antarctica but then it's just a giant goal it's so outside the norm um so if you enjoyed this episode i guarantee you'll enjoy that one and check back in the rest of our catalog i bet you'll find stuff you'll like as well uh, so yeah, so thank you, Kuntel. You were awesome. You were just the nicest person and I absolutely loved the conversation that we were, we were able to have and your adventures are beyond inspiring. All right, guys, let's get into the episode number 68 of the Like a Bigfoot podcast with Kuntel Joyser. All right guys, um I want to welcome to the show and I'm so excited. Um I have Kuntel Joysher on the podcast and he's the first documented vegan to summit Mount Everest. So, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Chris. You know, really really looking forward to this uh, conversation
1: and just like I do on other podcasts or other interviews, I again, you know, want to, uh, you know, touch the point of first documented vegan. So, uh you know, there's no real way or a reliable way to say that I'm the first vegan to climb Everest. Uh, there have been other claims before me. Uh, and uh, the only two authentic sources, that is Himalayan database and the Nepal government, they do not track a climber's diet. Um, for me, I really, really don't care if I'm the first or the second or the hundredth or the thousandth vegan. Uh to me, it's really, really important to just uh, get the message of veganism out there. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I like I like telling people that the message is important, not the messenger. If I'm the messenger at the point, you know, trying to, you know, take the message of veganism, great. If tomorrow it's someone else, great. It's It's just that I want the message to get out so that, you know, all these billions of animals that are slaughtered every year for food you know for food for our taste for our recreation for our clothing that stops happening uh and and that's the that's the bottom line i i really don't care if i'm the first vegan but it's great because uh the moment i say i'm the first vegan or if, if someone else says i'm the first vegan uh, there's a lot of publicity i get and there's a lot of exposure i get there's sometimes even press and media and tv that i get and and that's really a huge thing for me so that that You know, just want to clarify that up front before we get into the conversation.
0: Yeah, that's great. It gives you this platform that you're able to share your message and share your passion. And one thing I really loved about, because I just listened to your uh, episode with Casey and she kind of set this interview up um, on the Unlock Wellness podcast. And one thing I absolutely love about your story is the idea like, that you went through life for such a long time without having a cause or without having a purpose. And then as soon as you found your purpose, you know, it just started that momentum going. And it, it it's kind of culminated in this mountaineering career and climbing Everest, it's awesome.
1: Right, right, uh, you know, just, just looking back upon my life, you know, if I look back to the Kuntal from 2009, I actually do not remember that person at all. Uh, it it was me physically, but from any other perspective, I don't remember that guy. Uh, for a significant period of my life, I have always been a follower. And look, there's no nothing wrong in being a follower. You know, significant part of this world is a follower, so nothing wrong in you know doing that. Uh, but at the same time, I also felt that I you know, I was always living someone else's Everest or I was always living someone else's dream. Like, you know, my friends wanted to do this. So I said, sure, you know, I'm also going to do this. But, or, you know, my parents wanted to do something. And I, I thought, yes, cool, you know, that is that is something I should do. Yeah. So it, there was never a point where I had my own Everest. And in 2009, when I found my own Everest, which was climbing the real Everest, um, that is when I really, you know, real, I mean, that is when I realized that, how I mean how my life changed I mean imagine waking up every day with a with intense passion and you know crazy sense of purpose you know that uh, for, for doing something for pulling off something such big uh, I mean I was 110 kilos in 2009 and I still remember when I told my friends that I'm climbing Everest most of them thought that you know this guy is on you know doing some drugs or something you know he's like yeah. you know really lost it or something and um and everyone thought it was impossible you know frankly speaking i had my own self-doubts uh, i also you know at a moment thought you know am i crazy i'm 110 kgs i i have never you know done like really anything related to fitness in my life and here i'm talking about climbing the highest mountain in the world so i mean it, 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 there were just so many things going on but but just setting the goal and just having that goal in my life, everything just started falling in place. It It's almost like, you know, I don't believe in these concepts, but it's almost as if universe was conspiring me to, you know, get, you know, put me on top of the world Yeah. and just, you know, thing by, you know, like, you know, everything just started falling in place. Like, you know, my training and my diet and, and, you know, just, just doing all those training climbs, going to the Himalaya and and finally you know go, going on my first attempt on my second attempt and finally you know getting to the top of the world so it, it's just it's just crazy when i look back upon these 8 years you know how i have changed as a person and 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 so many things that i have found out about myself that i always thought i couldn't do but as soon as i went on this journey and i had a goal i i was able to do all those things so yes it, it was it has been a, it has been a roller coaster ride and i'm still on one and and i'm just you know waiting or not waiting but I'm just just looking forward to so many more such crazy experiences
0: yeah yeah so 2009 I mean that's not that long ago what can you give us an idea of what you know what your life was like before that were you an outdoorsy person were you an adventurer did you do any athletics I know you kind of mentioned you weren't super athletic like what were you like leading up to that So in 2001,
1: I moved to the United States, I I was living in Los Angeles. uh, And uh, for six years, I lived in Los Angeles. And, and at some point, I, uh, you know, I, I was just a computer engineer. So uh, I was writing software and, and, you know, how our jobs are, you're like 12, 14 hours just in front of a computer screen, you know, building something. So you're really like a sedentary person. And uh, and one day I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm writing code and suddenly my bo- boss walks in and, you know, yours is lean and mean guy with, you know, a cycle on his, uh, you know, shoulders and he walks in and I'm like, man, I am 25 and my boss is like 20 years, you know, older to me. It almost feels like opposite. Like he's, you know, 25 and I am 45, yeah. you know, and I'm, and, and I said, Richard, you know, really, you know, I'm inspired, I, I want to do something. And, and Richard said, let's just go buy a cycle for you. And so we just went out, uh, we bought a cycle and Richard said, you know, start cycling to work, you know, just stop, you know, taking any any other mode of transport. The very next day, I tried cycling to work. It it was only about eight miles to work. And it <laughs> took me like 50 minutes to cycle the first day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like taking breaks all the time. And, and of course, you know, as a I continued i persevered you know through that entire experience and and about six months later i was doing it in about of course 15 you know 14 15 minutes and I, I was becoming fitter i was feeling great and and everything was you know really my my life was you know just feeling good because you know if you're fit and if you're eating healthy you just feel really you know a good sense of well-being uh, this this continued for you know the time i lived in the u.s and I would still not say that I was overly athletic or you know like really super fit or anything, but I was you know just happy. Yeah. Uh, and then I moved to India to take care of my father, and uh, it's also during this time I got married and and again you know I fall, fell back into the sedentary lifestyle. I was still a vegan, but I would not call myself a very healthy vegan. I would eat all the junk food, all the all the unhealthy deep fried snacks, and 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 my portion sizes were like really huge. So. I was just, you know, fairly unhealthy, and I, you know, was 110 kgs. And look, I come from uh, a Gujarati family, and 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 Gujarat is a part of India which is, which is known for its food and known for its unhealthy people. I have to tell you that very clearly. Uh, there are no mountains in Gujarat, so so you know, you can be rest assured that I don't have any genetic gift of you know climbing mountains or yeah. anything. Um, so and and we are businessmen by you know like profession most Gujaratis are businessmen so um, so you know this is you know how my life was and 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 in in, in Mumbai I was running the India operations of a Los Angeles based company so again even though I was no longer a software engineer but uh, my job was still to sit on a desk and and you know do things all day long and and there was no fitness I in, in those two and a half years uh, since my return from US, I don't even remember for walking 30 minutes a day on any of the days, not even climbing stairs or, you know, none of these things because it's just that my life, I, I was into this sort of a rut or I would say, you know, going through motions kind of a, you know, deal where you're just doing something because, you know, everyone ex- expects you to do that. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone expects you to have a great job, make a lot of money, get married, have kids and, you know, just, just regular life that most Indians live. And I was also in that sort of motion and, um, and, and I, and, and I'm glad that during that time, uh, my wife Dipti and I decided that, hey, you know, we are going to take this, this, you know, trip to the Himalaya, um, uh, you know, Dipti had never seen snow in her life. And and for me, it had been almost 20 years since the time I had gone to the Himalaya. So I really wanted to see snow. I didn't... I was... For six years, I was in the United States, but I didn't see snow because, of course, I was living in Los Angeles. So, Sunshine 24-7. Yes. <laughs> Sunshine and beaches and, you know, great yeah. weather, but uh, no snow. And I, I was really desperate to see some snow. So both of us made this trip to the Himalaya and um, it was right in the middle of winters. And... Um, for the first six days, the temperatures were minus 10 Celsius, minus 12 Celsius. And every time you look at the sky, you think it's going to snow, but it wouldn't snow. So <laughs> yeah. we were like really, really miserable, you know, that nothing's happening. And so on, on the seventh day, a friend says, hey, why don't you go to this place called Narkanda? And it's like a really small hamlet in the Himalaya. And uh, you will see a lot of snow. So we, you know, get to Narkanda and and we see all the snow but all the snow is you know around the peaks uh, you know near narkanda and we would really wanted to touch the snow so the guy who drove us there said you know what this small peak about 12,000 feet we can actually drive to the top of this peak you know there's like a drivable road so we start driving on that road and about uh, a kilometer into the drive we run into about a feet of snow so the guy says you know what, now you can go, enjoy your time in the snow and... you know, objective achieved, let's go home now. Uh, So of course, you know, Dipti and I went in the snow and we... we really had a ball of a time and... you know, throwing snowballs at each other, you know, playing snow angels, making... you know, all these, you know, awesome things we did in snow. And then for whatever reason, I told Dipti, hey, you know, why don't we walk a little further? it'll, It'll be really... we have enjoyed until now. Why not try it, you know, a little further? So we started hiking and uh, we were in no shape to hike or we had no, not even appropriate clothes to hike. I still remember I was wearing jeans and, and, you know, just regular, you know, like, you know, shoes. And they were just absolutely not, even, I could not have even done a regular hike. Forget a snow hike at, you know, altitude. But anyways, we we started walking and 15 minutes became half an hour, half an an hour, an hour, couple of hours, three hours. Four hours later, you know, huffing and puffing, we finally reached a point where we couldn't go any further. And I'm like, shoot, we have made it to the top of this mountain. And it was just so insane experience. I mean, I was stand Like four hours before, I was standing at this point where I thought that this getting to the top of this thing is impossible. And four hours later, I just made it to the top.
0: Yeah,
1: And I quickly realized one thing that... All I did was just put one step in front of another, and I just kept
0: doing it. I just didn't give up. It's eye-opening. Here I am. It's eye-opening, it's, and you can you can put that mindset to like every single thing you do. Yes, absolutely.
1: And I mean, this was the first time, frankly speaking, it almost it, I I had such a high when I was on top of that mountain. It literally felt as if I was doing drugs. But. Uh, it was just absolutely intense experience. You know how like you, you can exactly live in that very moment and enjoy that very moment. And, and I thought, wow, this, this is crazy. I should do this often or I should feel like this for the rest of my life. And, uh, and I thought, you know, let's go down. Of course, my wife, I don't think you know felt anything close to what I felt <laughs> I think she was just absolutely miserable she, on the top <laughs> she had her
0: own experience
1: <laughs> she had her own experience and both of us had like you know completely opposite experience and yeah. and uh, and we came down and our, our you know the guy who drove us was like just like worried, you know where did you guys disappear and anyways if we came back home and I thought when I go back and I, I start working I will get this exactly same you know feeling and and um, i started working the next day and i i did not get the same feeling yeah
0: were your eyes just kind of opened to the possibilities now like you didn't realize that you could actually go out and climb a mountain or see these incredibly wild places did that just kind of open your eyes it it did open my eyes uh it, you know those
1: those visuals of of the himalaya or of us being just alone for miles and miles or that experience of being able to hear my own heartbeat distinctly. Or able to hear myself breathe very distinctly. I I thought this is crazy. You know, shouldn't we be living like this all the time? Yeah. And, and, and I couldn't feel like this at the sea level. So I decided I had to go back to the Himalaya and see if I feel like this again. And so I went back to the Himalaya. And I felt exactly like how I felt the last time in the Himalaya. And... So I started doing, you know, weekend trips to the Himalaya. I mean, Himalaya is pretty far off from where I live. It's it's like it's it's a two-hour flight and then <laughs> about a ten-hour drive, and uh, then I reach the Himalaya. So, but but you know, the calling was so intense yeah. that. I just couldn't say no. I, wow. I just felt that this is what I'm born to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, it, this may all seem, you know, crazy that, you know, hey, this guy, what has happened to him? And why is he... Like all my relatives thought, what has gotten into him? Like, you know, a lot of my friends thought, you know, um, I have found something there and, you know, um, whatever. You know, they were all making my, you know, fun of me. But I knew what I had found. I yeah. knew that I had found the calling of my life and I had found peace and I had found you know, mental clarity of what I really wanted to do in life. And uh, most of us, I mean, till 29 years of my life, I didn't realize that I could even live a life like this. And so for me, it was really important to pursue it, you know, further. So I just kept doing it. And I realized that, look, I have to, I I realized that, uh, you know, software engineering or, you know, working pays my bills. And so it's really important to do that. But it no longer is an end. Or it, this is no longer going to be my goal of my life. Uh, it's, well, it's only kind of, a means to an
0: end. Yeah, it's kind of like, what's the point of all that paying your bills if you're not going to, you know, seize the day?
1: <laughs> right, right. It, if, if you're not going to seize the day or if you're not happy in the end. I mean, all this, you know, earning all this money and going through all this, you know, crazy life, and at the end of the day, you are not even happy. You're not at peace with yourself. I, what's the point? Yeah. Sure, you know, you want to pay the bills and sure, you want to, you know, raise your kids and you you know, want to pay their bills and everything. But if you are not happy yourself and you are not at peace with yourself, you cannot make anyone else happy. Yep. That is something I truly believe from
0: the bottom of my heart. Me too. Oh, and especially with the, with the kids thing. I mean, for for me, I have two daughters. So for me to be the absolute best parent I can be, I have to make sure I have my, my, I have to have peace in my life. However that may come to me, you know? Right, right.
1: And even though I don't have any kids, um, I also think that as someone who's raising kids, you also have, like, you know, kids are possibly the most influenced in their formative years by their parents and how they are living. Yeah. And, and if you are not sending the right message and if you are not doing the right things, they're not going to, you know, they're They are not going to get influenced, you know, in the way you want them to be influenced. So if you're sending them the message that live your life, follow your dreams, you know, chase your passions, that's... Uh, uh, but if you're not doing it yourself, yep. how how are they going to get that message? They're going to think, okay, but my dad is doing this, or but my mom is do, doing this, so maybe that's how I should also live my life. So this is where, you know, I think that you have to be the change in the, you know you have to be the change you know that you want to see in the world yeah. you know it, it's it's a quote possibly you know by mahatma gandhi i don't remember who said this but i truly believe in that quote so if you want to influence positive change you have to live the change you have to walk the talk you can't be just talking talking and not walking the talk
0: yeah i i agree 100% i mean yeah you have to you can lead by example and that's what i really like about your story because i feel like you've definitely embraced that right so Yes, so, you know, I came back and, uh, I mean,
1: I I did all these trips and... So, did you start,
0: when you went to the Himalayas, when you started flying there and driving 10 hours, did you start, like, hiking them? I mean, were you just going on smaller hikes? Did you work your way up to kind of summiting the big peaks? Yes, so what I did, uh, I mean,
1: flying and driving was just a way to reach the base of the Himalaya because Himalaya is just so far and so tall and so big that just to get to the base you have to do all this and once I would get to the base I had actually found out a few small hikes that I could begin with to just try and understand whether I really like this because sometimes you think that you like something because you have seen it and you have experienced it once but once you experience it over and over again and for longer durations and go through all the nitty gritties, you may actually not enjoy it. Uh, This is something that I tell a lot of people who, you know, ask me the question, Hey, but how do I find my Everest? Yeah. Uh, And I I tell people that if you want to really find your Everest, first you have to figure out what you really enjoy doing uh, or, you know, figure out what you really like doing and then try it out. You know show up and try it out, because if you don't even try, the answer is always going to be no. Yeah. So please make an attempt first before you know, just discounting you know that fact. So that's what I you know started doing and, and as an engineer, I also like to reverse engineer things, and I knew that if I want to climb Everest or if I want to climb bigger mountains, the start has to be small and the start has to be baby steps. I can't just go and say, "Hey, I am going to climb Everest and go the next day and climb Everest." That's yeah. not going to happen. I know as an engineer that never happens. You know, when you build a bridge, the build the, the bridge is always built really slowly and gradually. Yeah. A- and, you know, that's how it is with everything. And you got to have a foundation. Yes, exactly. So that's what I, you know, started. First, I mean, I wanted to do multiple things. I wanted to really find out first whether I like it. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I also wanted to start training and, you know, building that foundation. So I did, you know, a few small trips and I realized that... Uh, I really enjoyed this is really you know something I want to do pursue for you know as much as possible and at the same time I also realized that at higher altitude even with lack of fitness I was acclimatizing so whatever you know was going on maybe genetically you know I was suited to go up higher altitudes uh, and I was just acclimatizing and I'd never had problems with headaches or I'd never had problems with breathing or those things So I said, okay, cool, you know, uh, I'm able to pull these smaller trips off and it looks really nice until now. Let's, you know, do a bigger trip and anyone who gets into trekking or mountaineering, you will at some point think about Mount Everest. It's, (laughs) I don't know what is an Everest. It has been climbed so many times. It's so commercialized. People say that it's like the biggest garbage bin in the world and, you know, all sorts of things about Everest, but. I don't know what's, what the attraction for, for this mountain is. Because you, Possibly it's to, like
0: you have to be there, you know, like, even though you hear all that, you're kind of like, I haven't been there yet, though. And I haven't experienced that. I know other people right. have, but like, I haven't. So I want to take it on. Right, right. And, and it's, it's
1: top of the world. So you also want to sort of, uh, you know, overcome that challenge. And it's more symbolic. You know, you you want to get over a lot of your, you know, your own limitations. Uh, And, and, you know, Everest is a great way to sort of do that. So anyways, I I was on this journey and um, I thought, uh, you know, hey, I should go to Everest base camp. I, you know, sure, I want to climb Everest. But first I had to see, you know, what I want to climb up front in person myself. And at that point, I will get a great idea of, you know, what my journey is going to look like. So... I sign up for Everest Base Camp and I walk to Everest Base Camp and um, I still remember on one of the evenings, uh, we were not at Everest Base Camp but right next to Everest Base Camp is another location called Pumori Base Camp and this is a location that actually no one goes to. Even though Everest Base Camp is like, you know, full of trekkers, if you just go like a day on the side, you get to this point called Pumori Base Camp and Pumori Base Camp gives you amazing views of Everest. Like, unparalleled views of Mount Everest. If you want, you have to go to Pumori Base Camp. So, we were camped at Pumori Base Camp. Uh, We were uh, supporting a climbing team that was attempting Mount Pumori. And uh, we were right there. We were all in the dining tent. Uh, The climbers were going to go up the mountain the very next day. And we were all, you know, just chit-chatting... Uh, you know some of us were eating food some of us were discussing some pictures and stories and generally speaking life was good and um, then someone started shouting my name and you know at the base camp is someone shouting your name something is not right anyway so I quickly run out and uh, the Sherpas are out there shouting my name and and they say look Kunta look look at Everest and uh, so I look at Everest and it's the sky is crystal clear and every mountain that like like, you know it's a panorama of the entire Everest range and every mountain is like blue or gray in color or like you know almost not visible yeah and you see at Everest and Everest the whole this entire west face that you can actually see from Pumori was like burning golden in color I mean someone had just you know put like Everest like you know lit Everest all the snow on Everest on fire and I mean, essentially the last rays of sunset were falling on Everest. And this, this is the true golden hour in the Himalaya. And it was, it was a scene right out of a postcard. And when I saw Everest in this fashion, I knew, I knew I'm going to climb this mountain. This is the dream. This is the calling of my life. And I was like, this is it done. My life for next few years is just chasing (laughs) this dream.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, So, so the next year, did you go after it? Is that when you started course, started your pursuit? I, I was not ready. I was not ready to go
1: next year. You know, I, I <clears throat> let me tell you an instance. In that very trip, uh, that dining tent that we were sitting in and chit-chatting, uh, the first time I actually entered the dining tent, on the right-hand side of the dining tent, on, on, on the tent wall, there are these, you know, uh, 15 to 20 pictures. And these were pictures of people's, fingers amputated people's toes amputated people who had lost their cheeks who had lost their ears uh people who had died on Everest like several dead body pictures you know were on that hall wall and uh, I still remember our our expedition leader uh, you know very famous mountain guide his name is Tim Rippel uh, he runs a company called Peak Freaks so you know Tim was addressing the entire audience and um Tim knew that there were several people who were Everest aspirants in the in the audience. And he said that do whatever you can, prepare as much as you can. Because if you don't, then you will also end up on this wall. And his statement really hit me. I knew that Everest is not, you know, something that I can, you know, take lightly. I have to prepare. Otherwise, I will lose digits or I will, worst case scenario, I will die and look, no one wants to die. I did not want to die because I really want to do a lot of things in my life. So I was very clear, I'm not dying for Everest. Yes, this is the big dream of my life and the calling of my life, but I will not die for it. Yeah. So that thing I was very clear about. So I came back home and just as an engineer, I thought, you know, how do I you know, tackle this problem? I, I want to climb Everest, but how do I do it? So oh. in my mind, the, the most clear thing was that I have to do a mountaineering course The very first thing I had to do is I had to build skill. I had to learn how to travel reliably on the mountains, how to travel safely on the mountains. And if things went wrong, how can I rescue myself or how can I not be a liability to the rest of the team? Uh, So I had to learn these skills. So, of course, I signed up for a course and uh, the course was uh, to be held on the northern ice cap in Chilean Patagonia. And I have to tell you, Northern Ice Cap is possibly the most remote region after Antarctica on this planet. Uh for the 15-20 days where I was, you know, learning skills, uh there was not a single human being for as far as your eyes can
0: go. Wait, it was, so it's a it's a mountaineering course. Are there other people with you? Yes. So a typical mountaineering course that you see in India
1: would have about hundred people in the course, yeah. with you know few instructors, and you really don't get to learn much in it. But this course was six students with two kick-ass mountain climbing guides. <laughs> yeah. You know, like one of the guides is actually a kayaker in Alaska, and he's of course a big mountain climber as well. Like his pictures would actually show up on like The cover of big mountaineering magazines in the world, you know, that kind of guides we had. So six
0: people, that's awesome.
1: Yes. So it was a student run course, and an instructor guided course. So essentially, we were running the course, we would navigate, we would build the anchors, we would traverse the glaciers, we would do everything. But the instructors were there to guide us and help us. And that's how the entire format of the course was. And it really, frankly speaking, this course was the turning point of my entire life. Uh, I, I will tell you how I actually found out this course. I came home, and just like most of us, how we do, we use Google to find out how to, you know, find other things in life. <laughs> yeah. I just typed on Google the hardest mountaineering course in the world. Yeah. And and this is the course I found. And let me tell you categorically, now that i 've done everest i 've climbed several other mountains in my life that this was the hardest mountaineering course in in the world. This is the hardest mountaineering course in the world what's it called uh, what's it called it's actually now shut down. It was run by uh the the the, the training school was Patagonia mountain climbing school okay uh, it no longer is unfortunately they have shut down this course because they are focusing more on creating mountain guides rather than, you know, introducing, uh, beginners to the mountains. Yeah. So anyway, uh, for the 15 days that I was, the the course was actually supposed to be a 35 day course. I lasted only 15 days. What made it, what made it
0: so challenging?
1: Uh, it was extremely remote. Uh, it was near Antarctica, which means that, uh, out of 24 hours, 20 hours, there was light So you would be in the field 20 hours just doing something. Uh, You had to cook your own food. As a vegan, I also had to cook non-vegan food, which included meat and everything. Uh, It's not... I mean, I would not call that a big challenge. Look, you are in a team, and if everyone else is cooking vegan food for me, it is also uh, fair that I cook non-vegan food for them. So I I didn't mind that. Um, There were, of course, uh, some really, really huge physical endurance requirements which I had very much underestimated Uh, and on top of that uh, I had never done anything like this in my life every other you know student had done something or other you know before they came here and so frankly speaking in the 15 days I could every day count hey today I didn't die for six times hey today I didn't die three times And by the end of the 15th day, I was like counting the number of times I didn't die. And I told myself, look, you know, if I continue, I will run out of luck and I will actually end up dying or breaking bones and going home. So I sat with the instructor, you know, her name is Jaya. uh, She's from New Zealand. And I, I told Jaya that, look, Jaya, I really underestimated your course and I really overestimated my own abilities. And I think it is time that I go home. It's not that I'm giving up, but I really, really understand how prepared I I should have been before I actually even signed up for this course. So it is clearly my mistake that I did this. And uh, it's a huge learning that I'm taking back from here. So even though I failed, I didn't complete the course, I think I'm going to end up doing a far better in my life uh, personally and even in my mountaineering life, in my professional life. Since that day, I have never underestimated any project. I have never underestimated any mountain. I have never underestimated the smallest thing in my life. And instead of underpreparing, I actually overprepare for every single project, for every single mountaineering expedition of my life. And that failure was a turning point of my life. Uh, Since that day, I also do not consider failures as failures. I actually consider... All my failures as, as just one ladder, you know, like a stepping stone towards success. Yep. Uh, a lot of people ask me that, you know, there have been so many lows and highs in your life. I actually no longer consider any of the lows as lows because all my life is just a life of high. All these lows, I you know, turn them into opportunities to go high. So why consider low a low? You know, it's, it's just a great time in your life where if you are going to be smart enough and learn from it and become a better person. It's just going to help you in life. So yeah.
0: it'll actually how I... drive you forward. I mean, yes, the idea that failure is going to build the momentum, you know, it's just, I think, you know, it's kind of just seems at least in the United States, our culture is about like, you hear the word fail and it's a bad thing. You know, it has this I... idea that's not something good. And yeah, I, I love that idea. I think that's key. Once you realize that failure is a good thing to, uh, improve you, then yeah, you can start moving forward on stuff.
1: Right. Right. And it's just not in the U S culture. I think it's also prevalent across the world, even in India where making mistakes is, is wrong, making, you know, failing is bad. And, and look, we are humans. We are going to make mistakes. Uh, this, this was something I had already learned during my professional life. I still remember my 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 mentor uh, he told me that kuntal you are going to fail i can guarantee that to you no project succeeds at first you know it's only when you make a project live and you learn from it you learn from the mistakes you have made in that project is that you can make that project better and you know better and and it's a never ending process and even today when I go on the mountain, I make mistakes. Uh, you know, there are several times when I turn around and come home. E- in spite of me having so much success, I still do that because I know that, I, you know, first of all, I have to stay alive. And the second thing, I know that failing is not end of the world. Yeah. You know, the mountain is there. I am there. Both of us are there. My life is going to be long. So why can't I just go and climb it again? Yeah. So it's, it's no point, you know, crying over a failure and, uh, you know, just, you know, like, you know, saying that it's the end of the world, you know, like I didn't climb Everest once, I didn't climb Everest twice. If I had, you know, thought that, hey, shoot, and just sit back home and, you know, be depressed about it, all the regrets in the life are going to be mine, no one else's. Yeah. So anyways, that's how I think about failure. So, but all that happened because of that one single instance of failing in that mountaineering course. And just turning around my life after that and saying, look, failure is okay. Mis- making mistakes
0: is okay. Yeah. Let's just learn from it. That's more important to, you know, think. Yeah, you had that great experience. So I read in an LA Times article that your mantra is patience, perspiration, and perseverance. Right. Um, And can you kind of apply that? Because I know you went to Everest a few times and, you know, Everest has had a few rough years um in 2014 and 2015 specifically there were these major tragedies that really shut the mountain down so how did you apply that mantra to kind of you know i'm sure the the tragedy was horrifying and horrible in itself but also like the disappointment that you weren't able to make an attempt right so
1: um you know after all this training all this, you know, uh, stuff, uh, my, my boss in the uh, U.S. said that, hey, you know, our company would like to, you know, uh, sponsor your Everest climb and, and because financing was the biggest piece yeah. that was missing when I was ready. And so he said, look, I, I, we have seen how you have trained in, you know, last six years, how you have transformed your life. We would like you to stand on top of the world and we would like you to stand on top of the world with a call fire flag. Uh, call Fire is of course a Los Angeles based company. I'm still employed by them and they were gracious enough to sponsor that's my entire so expedition. Awesome. That's a great boss. <laughs> yes, that's, that's a great boss and a great company and great coworkers yeah. who were all behind me. And, and, you know, it's, it's a great place to work because everyone, you know, takes care of each other. So anyways, I was ready, uh, to finally take the step to climb Everest. And I showed up, you know, at Everest base camp in 2014, And, uh, as you mentioned, you know, there was a big tragedy on April 18th, 17 Sherpa guides were killed in a single largest accident on the mountain. Uh, there was an ice avalanche. This is not your typical avalanche where, you know, a whole bunch of snow comes and, and, you know, you're buried under the snow, but the, this was like a big sea rack or a big ice tower actually broke up and like huge pieces, like huge ice boulders started tumbling down and. There were all these, you know, Sherpas who, you know, came under these boulders. And it it was like really, really gruesome way to die. Um, we heard about it, of course, on the radio. And uh, frankly speaking, at first, i the gravity of the situation didn't hit me at all. Uh, you, you know, you become so unemotional or so detached sometimes when you're on Everest because you're always hearing about all these deaths and, you know, people losing fingers and people falling sick that sometimes you just, you know, lose your human side. Uh, You just think, sure, you know, this is something that happens all the time. You just normalize these things. Uh, It was not until our Sherpa team came down and started sharing their experiences. Like, you know, our Sirdar Tashi Tundu you know, possibly the youngest sirdar on the circuit, you know, at 27, he had already climbed Everest 11 times. And, you know, look, this guy, you would think he's a fearless guy. You would think he's like a rock star. And when he comes in front of you and he starts like crying and saying that he had to walk on top of the dead bodies of his, you know, friends and of his brothers, or, you know, constantly think about uh, that, how he missed the accident just by five minutes all these, you know, stories, All when you hear these firsthand, uh, for me, it was like an eye-opening experience. For me, I thought, what was I thinking? There's a huge tragedy and, you know, I'm not even affected by it. Like how, how, you know, I mean, what is going on with me? Why have I become like this? And, you know, that's when I sort of sat back and thought a lot more about it. Uh, and over a period of next week, there is a lot of things that happened on Everest, possibly a lot of political things and and uh, just a whole bunch of, you know, even genuine things like Sherpas were worried, you know, that really no one is taking care of them, that they are putting their lives in harm's way all the time and, and they don't even have a helicopter rescue, you know, uh, uh, like given to them. So they were worried about their future, about, you know, their safety and, and possibly global warming has changed the world and it's also impacting Everest. So people were worried what's going on on Everest and and, and how things are, uh, you know, happening on Everest. Possibly it's more risky to climb several things and the expedition was cancelled after a week. Uh, all the expeditions on the south side of the mountain were cancelled that year. And um, I, I was really, I was like, sure, you know, I'm going to go back home uh, and I'm going to train harder. And I'm going to come back, you know, more prepared next year. So that's the mentality I went with. I, you know, thought, okay, it's just one attempt. Yeah. So many people have to make so many attempts to climb this mountain. So, you know, let's not be, you know, dejected or anything. Uh, and that's how I came back. And frankly speaking, again, the the calling or, you know, that intense burning desire to climb Everest had not gone away. It It's not as if, you know... I came back from attempt one and said, sure, you know, I don't want to climb Everest. That didn't happen. I wanted to climb Everest more than ever. So that fueled my training and that fueled, you know, a lot of changes were happening in me even from a, you know, from a from a spiritual or from a character development perspective because I had seen so many things on the mountain. Uh, anyways, I trained for another year and I... You know, uh, went back to climb Everest. Uh, In the meanwhile, I also ended up climbing Mount Manaslu. Mount Manaslu is the eighth highest mountain in the world. And at 27,000 feet, it is also one of the big mountains of the world. So I ended up climbing and reaching the top of Mount Manaslu, which is, uh, which was my first 8,000 meter mountain, which is also something that put my confidence on a different level. Now, suddenly I knew what was going to happen inside the death zone. Suddenly, I knew, you know, how to, what my body is going to do, what my mind is going to do. I knew, I knew in my mind that I'm going to climb Everest. I just don't, didn't knew when, but I knew that if the terrain stayed okay, and if the weather stayed okay, and if my body, you know, held up, I would reach the top of Mount Everest. I knew, I knew what it takes to climb that mountain. So, I was fairly confident, not overconfident in any which way, but confident. So... How how does your
0: body react? Like when you're above the death zone, like are you conscious of that? Like, you know, when you cross into the death zone, does that does any thoughts go through your head, or do you even know? Um,
1: you don't consciously know that you are in death zone. Like suddenly, it's not like a, a single point that you cross, and suddenly you know, hey, this yeah. is the death zone. Yeah, not that way, but. Once you are high up on the mountain, once you are about 77 or 7,800 meters and nearing the dead zone, you know that your body is just becoming slower and, you know, you are just, you know, you you get tired out quickly. You have to take breaks more often. Um, All these, but let me tell you what happened to me on Manaslu. Uh, We were at 7,500 meters, which is camp four on Manaslu and we started out at two o'clock in the morning. Manaslu is a short climb to the summit from Camp Four, and uh, my Sherpa put oxygen bottles in my bag. And for the first time, he put oxygen. I was the only team member who elected not to sleep on oxygen that night because I was feeling very strong. The moment my Sherpa put oxygen on me, I literally felt like a Superman. <laughs> I, <laughs> but but let me tell you, he 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 actually hadn't really put the oxygen at any tangible level where i would feel like a superman so somehow i feel it was just a placebo effect yeah that you know that hey oxygen is on me i'm like just going to run up this mountain <laughs> yeah. and um, and i started climbing uh, about 15 minutes later the the sherpa that was climbing with me uh said hey can you wait for five minutes uh i would just like to you know uh, use the loo and um I said, hey, you know, look, our other Sherpas are ahead. Can I just walk behind them? And he said, sure, you know, you can walk behind them. Uh, I will catch up with you. And the moment he said, I'll catch up with you, I just went. I don't know what was going on in my mind. I think I possibly had summit fever. I just wanted to reach the summit. And, you know, this is very much not me, but I also wanted to reach summit first. I don't believe in racing on the mountain, but I don't know what happened in my mind. But this is what happens when you are, you know, in oxygen-deprived environment. Things that you think at sea level that you won't do, you actually start doing exactly uh, those things. So, uh, you know, I just start walking and I just start walking really, really fast. And I like just started overtaking everyone. Like, you know, I overtook first climber, I overtook second climber, I overtook the third climber and their Sherpa. And then suddenly, you know, I realized that, there's no one in front of me and uh, Manaslu does not have a fixed line because the climb to the summit is, uh, you know, uh, fairly on a gentle 30 degree slope. So I find suddenly myself here where there's no one in front of me and I'm all alone and it's pitch dark. Like if I turned off my headlamp and put my hand in front of me, I could not even see my hand. It was that dark. And, and, And I'm like, shit, what have I done? I'm This is absolutely crazy. And then I suddenly see a small headlamp in front of me. And that's like a sense of relief runs through me that no, there is one more person in front of me. So then I, you know, just keep following that headlamp. And look, Manaslu is a huge plateau. There have been stories where people have actually gotten lost on Manaslu for days and days and no one's able to find them. So now I'm shit scared as well that, you know, if I miss this headlamp in any which way, I'm, you know, uh, you know, going to be like lost. And my Sherpa is nowhere to be found. So, I'm following this headlamp. And then at a certain point, the headlamp just disappears. (laughs) Because there are, you know, small hills up on Manaslu. And once you disappear on top of hill, I can't see them. So, now it's 3.30 in the morning. About 4 in the morning. And uh, there's still, dawn has still not come. So, I can't still see anything. And it's, you know, time to make a decision. It's time whether, you know, I have to go in front. Whether I should stay. And it's also during this time that my fingers were starting to get cold and they were almost starting to get numb. Um, And I was like, I I don't want to lose a finger for this mountain. And so I actually just decided that I'm going to sit there and like uh, do nothing. So for next half an hour, I was just sitting there and no one actually came, which is when I started panicking that I'm lost, that I'm not on the route because no one's coming in half an hour. I couldn't have... ...overtook them so fast that they can't show up for half an hour. And then I decided that I have to go down. That, you know, I really cannot take this risk with my life... ...with my fingers or with anything that I'll go down. So I started down climbing... ...and after about 10 minutes of down climbing... ...I suddenly see that there's a headlamp that is coming up. And and this guy shows up... ...and he's wearing a yellow down jacket. And my Sherpa was also wearing a yellow down jacket. But yellow down jacket is a very common thing on the mountains. So... I go near him and, of course, this is my Sherpa. And I am, like, so, so relieved. Uh, And then I ask him, what happened? And he's like, you know, I have a bad, bad, bad bout of diarrhea. And I have, you know, just been stopping and breaking all the time in last, you know, few hours that I'm trying to catch up with you. And uh, you are running so fast that I actually had to take oxygen uh, and pump it up to you know, full four pressure so that I could catch up with you. And I, you know, I totally realized my mistake. I should never have left my Sherpa because, uh, you know, I didn't know the route on the mountain and uh, I should never have run this, you know, this much. It's just stupid. You should never be racing on the mountain. Look, no one at the end of the day asks whether you reached first or whether you reached second or whether you reached. It's just important to reach the top of the mountain and, you know, stay safe and, you know, stay you know, alive and all these mistakes I made, you know, anyways, luckily my Sherpa met me and um, he, you know, helped me bring, uh, you know, you know, circulation back in my fingers. And after that, we just gently moved up and, you know, both of us reached the top of Mount Panaslu and it, it was an absolutely spectacular experience because, um, and uh, half an hour later, you know, the first light uh, of the day hit and, it was like a crystal clear day, no cloud in the sky and you could see all the way to Tibet and all Nepal and it almost felt as if, you know, I was on top of the world and it was just an absolutely crazy feeling. I yeah. just thoroughly enjoyed the climb after that point. You know, when I came back in my senses that I don't want to run up this mountain. Yeah. Sure, you know, I'm fit. I am strong. Doesn't mean that, you know, I take unnecessary risks. No, it's great oh. you're,
0: just, you're just collecting all of this uh, great like experiential advice, you know, or you're putting yourself through these experiences and now you're learning these lessons. You know, like I'm sure, I'm sure people can tell you that lesson all day, like don't Babe. race. But now you like going into like actually going after Everest, you understand like that feeling of wanting to get to the top, like that feeling of summit fever and you're able Babe. to kind of combat it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I I mean, I, when I climbed Everest in 2016, sorry, I'm just going to go, you know, talk about 2015 quickly so that I can get into 2016. (laughs) Um, But 2015, you know, was going really well. Like we got to the base camp and uh, we climbed on our first acclimatization rotation to camp one. We went to camp two. This was the first time I was sleeping at camp two. I had always heard about it. I had always heard about it in, you know, stories by Sir Edmund Hillary where, where you know, he said about Western Coombe and he he described about this, you know, crazy valley, uh, you know, leading up to Lotsefez. It, it was just such a spiritual experience, you know, seeing these places, something that I had always read about or I had always seen in, you know, the movies and, and, you know, just walking in the same steps, knowing that, you know, Sherpa Tenzing had walked here, Sir Edmund Hillary had walked here and all these great mountaineers had walked here and I'm walking in their footsteps. It was just out of the world. And it almost seemed as if 2015 was going to be the year when I will make make it to the top and, you know, fulfill my dream. And um, it was April 25th. We had just gotten back down from Camp 2. Uh, I still remember Mingma, my Sherpa, you know, like waking everyone up. You know, in the morning, six o'clock. Like he just came on the tent and said, everyone needs to be out in 15 minutes, and you know, starting to walk down through the icefall. And I'm like, Mingma, we are done. You know, why don't you give us an hour or two hours to sleep, and we'll just go relaxed. And he's like, nothing doing. The weather is getting bad. You have to be down. And uh, we were down by 10:30, and um, I, I, I had. I took a shower after almost 25 days, so I was like really happy that I'd taken a shower and I had new clothes and I was feeling clean and everything. Um, and uh, it was about 11:55 uh, when we were sitting in this, you know, our dining tent, and it's like sort of started shaking. And uh, I knew this was an earthquake. I, I mean, I've lived in California, and I I know what a small earthquake feels like. So I knew this was an earthquake and i told everyone but they all started making my fun hey you are altitude sick from you know the climb and all those things and of course five seconds later the earthquake was in full swing and like it was like the whole glacier was shaking i mean imagine standing on a giant swing which is swaying from one end to the next this entire glacier was like that at that point and and we and, and we are standing in the middle of the glacier and and looking everywhere around but we really can't see any mountains because a low cloud had set in on everest so you know every day the, the weather on everest changes so you know at the base camp also changes so sometimes you can't really see anything it's just all foggy at the base camp so here we are standing can't see anything there's a huge earthquake already going on and you know for a moment a lot of us were even joking like uh, uh Hey, what if the ground opens up and we get swallowed in like, you know how it happened in the movie 2012. Yeah. So we're all, you know, joking about this. Of course it doesn't happen that way, but, uh, you know, we are talking about these things and then suddenly the earthquake just, you know, sort of, uh, stops and, um, there's like an eerie calm at the base camp. And, um, I was frankly speaking in my mind, I was terrified because. I know what such a huge earthquake can do and I was like just sort of you know hoping that nothing uh, comes our way and of course uh, there's a huge bomb blast that you know we we hear at a distance almost as if like a mountain has fallen down and something's you know rushing towards us now the sound of it was coming from towards Everest so all of us were looking east you know towards Everest but of course we can't see anything so everyone's a little tentative and uh, in that moment uh, the the campsite that was right in front of us there were all these people who just started suddenly running towards everest and i'm thinking how can this be you know the avalanche is coming from everest why are they running towards the avalanche it just does not make any sense uh which is when our team realized that actually avalanche is behind us and that's when we you know turned around and And we see this gigantic, you know, sort of a cloud of snow and ice. I mean, if you look from the left of the sky to the right of the sky, anywhere in the sky, wherever, you know, your your eyes can go, it was just filled with this huge avalanche. And uh, frankly speaking, there was nowhere to hide, you know, nowhere to run. And um, for me, it was, you know, I didn't, I I wasn't scared or anything. Because I knew that it was a certain death in front of me. So, uh, for me, it was more of a feeling of intense sadness that just went through my body. Uh, you know, like your heart just sinks completely. You know, when like one of your projects fails or you know you have like a big setback in life. It's just like, you know, my heart just sank and I just wanted to cry out loud because I didn't want to die. And we are faced with this huge avalanche in front of us. So, anyway... Three of us quickly go and we hid behind a tent. Um, in the hindsight, of course, it was stupid to go hide behind a tent because that plastic was not going to save us yeah. from such a big avalanche. Uh, but anyways, we, we were behind the tent and the avalanche came and it hit us. Um, I was expecting to be buried under a meter or so of snow because this kind of an avalanche would definitely bring easily three, four feet of snow with along with it. And I thought that within, you know, 15-20 minutes, we'll be choking and dying, all all of us together, possibly, you know, easily about seven, 800 people at the base camp would be dead. And uh, then suddenly, you know, I realized that there's only about uh, an inch of snow on my body, a couple of inches of snow on my body. And I'm like, this, you know, this looks really good. I made it out of the earthquake. It seems like I'm going to make it out of the avalanche as well. And then I just couldn't breathe for whatever reason I it's almost as if the avalanche had sucked out all the you know air from the environment and uh, I was trying to breathe I would like do this
0: yeah
1: and nothing would come in and um, I was just I was just struggling it's almost like I thought the avalanche didn't kill me the earthquake didn't kill me now this thing is going to kill me yeah
0: was and- it like panic or like
1: shock I think initially it was a panic but uh, after that I feel what had actually happened is that this this wake of the avalanche or this you know aftershock of the avalanche that had you know sucked out all the air or you know that had filled the air with you know this uh, I I sort of you know like to call it like you know you know you have these deodorants filled with the gas I I think the entire air was just filled with some kind of a gas where we just couldn't breathe anything. And so initially it was possibly panic, but then it was just you know we just couldn't breathe, yeah. and that's when the guy next to me, uh, sort of uh, his name is Yost Kabush. he's a German mountain climber, he opened his jacket and said Kuntal you can come inside my jacket and breathe. So I went inside his jacket and like I was shocked you know that I could breathe, and uh, of course you know for the next two and a half minutes I went inside his jacket and you know I would keep breathing from his jacket. And he was doing that himself and the, ja- the Japanese climber next to him was also breathing in the second side of his jacket. So all three of us were, you know, sort of just, you know, breathing inside his jacket uh, as the avalanche passed over us. Now, what had actually happened is the mountain Pumori, which is diagonally opposite of Everest, which would mean it, it was behind us, a big block of snow and ice, possibly the size of a football stadium, had actually gotten dislodged from the top of Pumori. Not top of Pumori, but from Pumori, there's a ridge that connects to another mountain called LinkedIn. And from that ridge, there was this big overhanging block of snow and ice that had actually gotten dislodged. And that fell down. And when it impacted with the ground, it actually gave rise to a shockwave that ripped the entire base camp apart. So it was not the actual avalanche that hit the base camp, but it was like the aftershock of the avalanche that hit the base camp. And... And the reason we were hearing the sound of the avalanche from Everest was because the echo of that aftershock was, you know, coming from Everest, which is why we got completely confused about the direction of where the avalanche would come from. Um, Now, once the avalanche finished, we quickly did a headcount of our own team and no one had died. But our entire campsite was, you know, completely devastated. Like, I know... Like, you know, the Japanese climber, his name is Taro Yamagata and his entire tent, his boots, his sleeping bags, everything had flown off like, you know, almost a kilometer into the ice field. And it was just like that everywhere around. We quickly ran to the medical tent and, um, you know, we realized that uh, there are a lot of people who have died and most of the injuries were trauma injuries because this was not a typical avalanche. People who were in the middle of the avalanche just got thrown off, you know, into the ice field and they possibly took a few tumbles before coming to stop, which means they died a really gruesome death. Yeah. Um, people with, you know, hands broken and legs broken people with, you know, like faces completely mangled. And it it was just, it was almost like a war zone kind of a feeling. And, and frankly speaking, the only reason I'm talking to you right now, uh, is because I was just 50 meters away from that point. Like, I, like the next campsite was Dreamer's Destination, a team, uh, you, know, you know, a very famous team. And they were, I would think, not more than 50 to 75 meters apart from us. And there were people who actually died on their team. So Jeez. just imagine that 50 meters made all the difference that I'm alive. I didn't even have a scratch on my body. And people 50 meters apart from me were actually, die, you know, died. So for me, it, it was like a life-changing experience. It, it, I mean, frankly, I, I mean, of course, 21 people died at the base camp and and more than 100 were injured. And we, we made a phone call to Kathmandu uh, and we realized that 10,000 people dead in Kathmandu, half a million living on the streets in makeshift, uh, you know, arrangements and which is when we realize that this is no longer an Everest tragedy, you know, like yeah. last year, this, this is actually um, a Nepal tragedy, a human humanitarian tragedy and a tragedy of unprecedented levels. And, and that we no longer should be climbing this mountain. We really need to be going home and uh, let Nepal heal and rebuild yeah. and, and let the, let all the staff, let all the Sherpas, let everyone, You know, go back to their uh, respective homes and be with their families and, you know, just sort of, um, you know, be in, you know, with their families in time of need. So that's how sort of uh, I thought. And I was also the expedition leader. So uh, I sat down with the, you know, lead Sherpa, the Siddhar Sherpa, and both of us said we are going home. All the teams around the base camp made their own decisions. This time, no one had to come in and say, you are all going home. This yeah. time, everyone actually made their own decision and everyone went home. Um, to me, it was very clear, you know, that I was willing to wait one inconsequential year to, you know, go back and climb Everest. I was willing to train hard and, you know, stay focused and stay, you know, stay patient and and come back and, you know, uh, climb this mountain. So, so, neither
0: neither of the tragedies really put doubt in your into your mission. I mean, you you didn't have any doubt about doing it um or anything like that. Um again, you know when I came back home,
1: I I remember that a lot of people told me that uh Kuntal you don't have what it takes to climb this mountain. You know, you have now spent like, you know, what close to 100,000 US dollars on climbing this mountain and, and you you're spending all this money and you're not climbing and Look, most people don't even realize what's going on on the mountain. So uh, I didn't even get to make an attempt. Yeah, Yeah. So in my mind, I was very clear that I have not even made an attempt. If I make an attempt the third time and if I fail, sure, you know, I will say, okay, I've done what I could. I will move on and climb other mountains in life. But I was not ready to give up this was my dream, this was my baby, and I, I was, you know, going to, you know, protect my dream and protect my baby. So I said, I'm going to go one last time to climb this mountain. I'm going to train harder than ever. I'm going to be ready, more ready than ever. And if everything goes well, we'll see how things go. And so with that attitude, look, and as far as I can remember in life, I I don't know whether it's a genetic gift or whether, you know, it's just how my upbringing has been. I really don't pay attention to what others say to me. I can just put blinders on and I can just ignore everything that anyone else says and I just follow what I want to do. I just follow my dream. Um, And uh, I was sort of, uh, you know, able to put those blinders on, uh, ignore all that noise, uh, ignore all that, you know, criticism, uh, if it's con- constructive criticism I'm always you know ready to listen I'm always ready to learn and always ready to grow but this was all nonsense so I I, re- I knew it I focused for another year and uh, I showed up to climb Mount Everest again in 2016 uh, now this year everyone had this weird sense of confidence right from the guy who received me at the airport to the guy who put me on the flight to Lukla or the lodge owners that met all along the way to Everest Base Camp. Everyone had this confidence that this year is going to be great on Everest. And I'm telling myself, 2014-17 dead. 2015-21 dead. I have no idea where these guys are getting their confidence from. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that confidence, but I have confidence in myself. That if things stay okay, that I'm going to climb. But uh, I don't know what's going to happen on Everest as such. Um, luckily, we got to the base camp fine. We did our acclimatization rotations on the mountain fine. And we were on the final summit push. We, we went from, you know, base camp, crossed the icefall, got to camp one, got to camp two. And from camp two is what I had, you know, got reached last time. And then yeah. from camp two, we made all the way to camp three. And, you know, that is when I actually started, you know, un- realizing or, you know, getting a sense that I am actually going to climb this mountain. When I reached Camp 3, I was like, I have gotten here, you know, now, now, unless something goes seriously wrong, uh, I may not climb it. But I, I was like, sure, you know, I'm going to climb this mountain. And then, then finally, you know, we made the climb from Camp 3 to South Col. You know, passing through all those sections of Yellow Band and Geneva Spur and, you know, all those famous places where all these famous mountaineers have climbed. And I was so thrilled to climb through those places and finally sleep a night inside the death zone. Uh, I was at South Coal and uh, I still remember it was about four in the evening that I reached South Coal. Uh, I went inside the tent we were four of a, like you know South Coal is like a even though it's like a really big campsite there are only few tents because uh, you know carrying gear and carrying oxygen and food up to that point is really difficult so we were four people in a tent and um, I I still remember you know I'm like wow I've gotten to this point you know it's I'm like few hours away from standing on top of the world and then suddenly I hear the zip opening of my tent and I see Mingma who's you know who who is the who's the Sirdar of the team, but also my personal Sherpa. He, you know, he's like, he pokes through the tent and says, guys, be ready by eight o'clock, we are leaving. Wow. And I look at my watch and I'm like, it's five. We have only three hours. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm going to get only one hour to sleep and then two hours to get ready. Yeah. So I thought, you know what? I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting ready. I'm actually not going to change at all. I'm just going to fall asleep. And when it's time to get ready, I'll just change my shoes. That's about it. I mean, I'll just change my socks and that's about it. So I slept for a bit and uh, then I got ready and uh, I came out. I have to tell you, it was like really cold. I mean, I have never felt this cold in my life. Possibly it was not that cold, but it was just all that nervousness and all that nervous energy that was making me, you know, a little more cold. And um, then one by one, every team member left and uh, Mingma... I see Mingma's face and I knew something was wrong. So I asked Mingma, what's going on? And he says, we don't have water. And I'm like, Mingma, we can't climb without water. We need water. Otherwise, you know, we are going to not, we are going to die. And then Mingma says, okay, I'm going to make water. So, uh, I am now, now getting colder and colder because I'm standing stationary uh, yeah. as Mingma is making water. So, both of us are miserable. You know, he's also miserable, right? Even though he's a Sherpa and he's like a really rock star Sherpa, you know, at, at, at 26,000 feet, uh, you are suffering. Believe me, you are suffering all the time. Um, and then he finishes making the water. All of this took 45 minutes. He had to first bring ice. He had to start the burner. And, and because we didn't have any water, it's just difficult to boil ice to start with. If you have yeah. some water, then, you know, ice just st- starts melting easily. Uh, we, we put a couple of tea bags, like green tea bags in this water so that the water is a little flavored. And Mingma puts it into his, you know, thick sock and into his backpack. And then we said, okay, let's start moving. So we start walking, walking. And about uh, three hours walking, we reach a a stationary headlamp. And I quickly realized that it's my friend uh, who I have been training for the last two and a half years uh, to climb Everest. And he's stationary. And I ask him, hey, what's going on? And he says that I'm giving up. I'm going home. And... It, he was not that sad As much, you know, as sadness that overtook me yeah. I had spent a lot of time training this guy And I was, you know, very dejected that he's giving up I said, look, why don't you just try climbing behind me for half an hour And then we'll take a call So he said, okay He, he gets up and he tries walking for two steps And he just falls down And uh, then Mingma sees all this And Mingma, who's the a, who's a leader of the team And he just says, you are going down He instructed the Sherpa, take him down. He's not climbing to the top. Uh, And the guy who, you know, uh, my friend, he agrees and he goes down. Uh, I think this was the smartest and the bravest decision made on my team. Because when he got to the base camp and got a sonography done, he realized that um, he actually had pus in his kidney. Like he had a bad infection in his his kidney. And if he would have attempted to go further up, he could have possibly died. So... Luckily my Sherpa made a great decision and the guy himself made a great decision and you know, yeah. he ended up turning around because this close to the summit, you would be so blinded by the summit fever that yeah. you would not think about these things. Anyways, I climb, 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 climb through the night. Uh, the first rays of, you know, sun, sunlight hit us in the morning and I, I climb, climb, climb and uh, I'm now just 10, about 10 meters away from standing on the very top. Like Mingma has gone ahead and you know, he's standing on the summit of Everest and I, I can see him standing on the summit of Everest and believe me, um, a lot of people ask me what was going on in your mind when you saw the summit. And, uh, when I saw the summit, it, there was just one thing that went through my mind. It was an intense sense of relief that thank God Everest is now out of my life. Yeah. I, I have spent so much time trying to climb this mountain. Finally, I have done it. It's all done. I knew and I knew that I was strong enough to get back down safely because I I was very clear in my mind that an expedition is not just getting to the top, but getting back down also in one piece. So I knew that. That is why that sense of relief that done, you know, this is it. The biggest dream of my life, finished, achieved, completed. And, And I don't know what happened after that, but I just got so emotional. I mean, tears just started flowing. Like, you know, I mean it was as if uh, like a river was flowing through my eyes i just couldn't stop my tears and and i started walking and i continued walking and i just continued crying and finally i got to the top and uh, uh, another teammate of mine was also there he came and you know both of us like sort of hugged each other and then finally you know i like high-fived mingma and and mingma was a little worried because like uh, like you know i was crying I was crying by shouting and uh, he thought that I had gotten in some trouble like that, you know, like uh, I was going to die or something. And I, I told Mingma, no, Mingma, look, I'm doing great. And I'm like, really, really doing strong, like strong. And, and so anyways, it, it, it was really a great time on the top. Uh, uh, I wanted to do a couple of things. Of course, I wanted to put a vegan flag on the mountain. Yep. Um uh, I, you know, I went vegan 15 years ago and I think veganism changed my entire life and, and I really wanted to, you know, sort of con- contribute back to the cause and I had a vegan flag. So I, you know, put that flag, took some pictures and then I had a satellite phone with me. So I wanted to make a phone call to my dad. Now my dad is a dementia patient and has been one for last 15 years and he's completely bedridden and, um, I don't think he remembers his own name or he would understand what Everest is. But to me, it was important to, you know, tell him that I have finished the biggest dream of my life. Because if even, if that even brought a smile on his face, that was very, very important to me. So I made a phone call, my wife picked up and like I was shouting, hey Dipti, I'm on top of the world, you know, tell my dad. And there was just so much wind that for the first time she couldn't hear. She's asking, what are you saying? And I'm like, man, I'm, on t- I'm at 29,000 feet making a phone call and these guys can't hear me. <laughs> such a, you know, terrible thing. Yeah. But then I shouted again, hey, hey, Dipti, I'm on top of the world. Tell my dad. And then she's like, okay, okay. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, she, she told the dad and, you know, ev- the, the news went viral across, you know, my family and across India. And, you know, that, hey, this guy has reached the top of the world. And, and then, of course, uh, uh, I really wanted to spend some time on the top for myself. Uh, Mingma was on my case. Kuntal, the wind has picked up, you know, it's about 60, 70 kilometers per hour right now and it's just going to go bad from here. Let's get down from here. We don't want to get stuck here. And I told Mingma, look, Mingma, it has taken me eight years to get here. I deserve the five minutes, you know, for myself. And so he's like, okay, okay. You know, you can take your five minutes. And and let me tell you, those five minutes were, are till date possibly the most magical minutes of my life. I, I have to tell you the view from the top of the world is, is actually out of the world i <laughs> I have no words to describe that view i i have no no words to describe that feeling because you have to be there to feel it yourself it 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 was just beyond magical i mean if someone tells me that I have to go through this journey of eight years again you know to to get that five minutes on the top again I am actually willing to do that it was wow. it was that intense
0: wow
1: so so yeah i i, I finished you know i, I took I was there for 20 minutes on the top and then the focus was to go back down safely, to reach, you know, home safely in one piece, not make any mistakes because it is while going down when people make most mistakes. So I was very, you know, I was very clear I cannot make any mistakes. So very focused for the next two days as I, you know, traversed the terrain, uh, very slow, very measured. and, And the moment I took the first step at the base camp, I knew, you know, that this is it, I have finished the expedition, I have, you know, I've reached the top of the world, I have been physically there, and, and that the journey is, you know, now, that this journey is, is at least over for now, so, yeah, and,
0: and I, I didn't lose any fingers, I didn't lose any toes. Yeah. so. <laughs> That's always a victory, yeah. yeah, wow, I mean, honestly, Kuntel, I could sit here and just listen to you tell stories all day, you're, a fantastic. First of all, you're a fantastic storyteller. So I was just completely, you know, uh, enraptured in what you're saying. Um, but yeah, congratulations. I mean, there's so many lessons to draw just from your whole story and from your whole experience. Um, what what's like an action step someone can take after listening to the to your story in this podcast? Um, what could what what's an action step someone could take to pursue kind of their own goals? Uh,
1: I, think, I think it has to start from the start, which is essentially, first of all, find what your goal is. Find something that, you know, you are passionate about. Find something that, you know, would help you find a sense of purpose in life. Because uh, if that actually happens, then you will be able to sustain it for a much longer duration. Uh, it could be a sport, it could be an art, it could be music, it could be anything, it could be, you know, opening your own startup, it could be traveling the world, anything, anything that, you know, essentially, you know, inspires you, not motivates you. I think, you know, between inspiration and motivation, I think motivation is, is a slightly negative concept. I really like inspirational because once you are inspired, you, you know, you, you could possibly be self-inspired and, you know, go on a journey. So, uh, I think first find what that Everest is. And for finding that Everest, I think you have to try. You have to show up. You have to get over the hesitation to do something. You have to get over the hesitation of failure. Like so many people think, you know, that, hey, I really like, you know, uh, like acting. Uh, But what if I fail? What if people laugh at me? What if, you know, this happens? Look, unless you do, you're not going to find out what the answer is. Yeah. But if you don't do, the answer is always going to be no. So might as well find out and get the answer no. Instead of, you know, not doing it and getting the answer no. So I think the first step is find what your Everest is and actually try it out. See if you like it. And, you know, get over those hesitations and get over those, you know, limitations and doubts that you have created for yourself. That you can't do this, you can't do this. And, And I think once you are beyond those steps where, you know, you have taken the first steps you have shown up you have found your Everest and you are you know on the journey I think 50 60 percent of the battle is already won by then and at that point you would really not even require uh, you know a sort of uh, a mentor or or an inspirational figure in your life who's going to you know constantly you know like motivate you or you know like you know take you forward because by then you would be self-inspired to go and find out how you know, to uh, do, you know, or, you know, achieve your goals. Of course, you would need mentors throughout your journey, who teach you certain things, and you know, who give you certain experiences through which you would have your learnings. But I think the most important thing is to actually show up. And, uh, and also remember that in your journey, you are going to fail, there are going to be a lot of obstacles. I mean, in my eight-year journey, I failed several times. There were several obstacles. Uh, but the biggest thing for me, I, I found out is that I am, I am a perseverant guy. That, that I did not give up because my dreams were important to me. Uh, and so in, in any journey, you know, obstacles and failures will happen. It's important to not give up. So this is, you know, something, uh, you know, as a message I would like to give, you know, your audience that... If you go on a journey, please, please don't give up. Give your 500% to whatever you are doing. And if at the end you feel it's still not happening, then sure, it's not the end of the world. There are several other things to do. And this world, you know, is huge. And there are so many opportunities. There are so many things. So go find a different Everest and pursue that Everest. But for your your initial Everest, please give in your 500% before Mm -hmm. giving up. Yeah. So that's what you know. My message
0: would be. That's awesome, man! I love that so much. Uh, yeah, you you need to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I spoke with you know Dr. Casey
1: about that as well. <laughs> book book will happen someday in life. Yes. Uh, it, it's it's another Everest of its own, so oh, of an course. Everest that. I am not willing to take on at this moment when my
0: Everest is to climb more mountains. Yeah, 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 definitely. Where can, uh, where can people find more about you? I mean, obviously we mentioned unlock wellness podcast with, with Casey, but where, where else can we find you uh, more information about you? Right. So the best way to reach out to me is through two mediums, uh, or
1: I should say three mediums. One is of course my website, which is www.kuntaljoysher.com. That is definitely one. Uh, second is through my Facebook page. Uh, I have a public profile and uh, every single post that I make on Facebook is public. Uh, so you can follow my public profile. That is number two. And number three is my Instagram page. Now, every time I'm on an expedition, I don't update my website. Neither I update my Facebook page. I only update my Instagram. Okay. So that's a single single place where you know I share photos and share stories from my expeditions. So that's Instagram. So... Uh, My Instagram handle is Kuntal J. So either of these three places uh, you can follow and you can get updates
0: about me and what I'm doing. Awesome. And I'll link all those to the show notes so you guys can just check that out. But uh, Kuntal, thank you so much for joining me, man. This has been I've just I'm, I'm an Everest nerd. Like I love hearing stories from Everest. So I absolutely was riveted by your story. So thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for
1: having me on your show. Yeah. Really really ni- nice, you know, talking to you. And you know, again, always re- it's always fun recollecting stories from Everest. I really, be- because you know, when I'm telling you the story, I'm reliving those moments. So for yeah. me, it's really, really, you know, fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, man, keep it up. I'll definitely uh, be following you on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. And everyone should for-, should for sure check it out. I mean, you got some more expeditions coming up then. Yes, I have hopefully
1: some expeditions coming up in April two thousand and eighteen, so I'm already starting to train for that awesome
0: man well, good luck with those <laughs> thank you thank you so much yeah have a good one you too bye bye there you have it, ladies and gentlemen um once again thanks thank you Kuntel so much. you're just the best you are awesome and i just it's I admire so much of what you've been able to do and it's it's incredible. So congratulations on Everest. I know it's like <laughs> it's like a, a year later, but totally congratulations. It's it's just beyond inspiring. So you rock. Um make sure you guys check out all of Kuntel's stuff. Make sure you check out his episode of the Unlock Wellness podcast with uh, Dr. Casey Johnson. It was it was great. It was fantastic. Um let's just leave the episode with with the the idea because we're trying to talk about like expanding our capacity so how do you expand your capacity for inspiration how do you expand your capacity for success and really like I said the big idea of the episode is finding your life's purpose don't become complacent in life don't go on zombie mode find what is important to you find what your mission is find what you love to do And then somehow morph those things together and go after something awesome. That's kind of the goal in life, right? To lead a life that was completely fulfilling. So that's something to strive for. um, And that's something I really learned from Kuntel. So so thank you. Uh, If you guys enjoyed the podcast, subscribe. Uh, Give us a review But definitely subscribe That's kind of the way You can get these They're going to come out Every Thursday Every single week We have some amazing guests Coming up Uh, You know Everything from Endurance athletes To uh, People just Kind of Living uh, You know Living uh, Nomadically in their vans Traveling to all these parks And Yeah You guys are going to enjoy it Um, I definitely I've been trying to get Quite a few recorded Before the holiday season Because I have a feeling it's gonna get pretty pretty busy so uh yeah so I'm getting a few here if you have any suggestions feel free to shoot me an email likeabigfoot at gmail.com uh if you have any suggestions of guests or anyone you know did something really cool I'd love to chat with them and be sure to follow us on Instagram like a bigfoot Facebook like a bigfoot uh our website I think you can guess what that is um Yeah, and then, like I said, iTunes is the big way or anywhere you find podcasts. uh, Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. All right, guys, uh, that's all for this week, and we'll get back at you next week. Thanks for listening.